good morning and welcome to Subject ACT. I'm Nathan Gubler. As many know by now, Family and Community Day next year will be moved to May where it will become Reconciliation Day, which will be a day to acknowledge the uh, ongoing uh, move towards reconciliation uh, with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And this year has marked uh, several uh, anniversaries to do with this uh, reconciliation. Uh, for instance, it's 50 years since the 1967 referendum. And it's also 25 years since the uh, historic Eddie Mabo decision was handed down by the High Court. Uh, another anniversary that's being marked this year, which is getting a bit less press, is it's been 10 years since uh, the Bruce Trevorrow case was successful in the state of South Australia. Bruce Trevorrow was an Aboriginal man who, at 13 months old, was taken from his family unlawfully by the state of South Australia, and he spent the final years of his life fighting a historic case which would see him financially compensated and also have the courts acknowledge the wrong that had been done to him. To find out more about this important moment in Australian history, I had a chat with Joanna Richardson, who was the solicitor for Bruce Trevorrow in this case. Joanna Richardson, welcome to Subject ACT. Oh, thanks, Nathan. So, Joanna, um, can you tell us a little bit about who Bruce Trevorrow actually was? Uh, Bruce Trevorrow was a Narendra man, who uh, and Narendri are a um, traditional owners of the land around the Coorong and the Lower Murray, uh, Goolwa area in South Australia. Um, and he was born in November 1956 and he was removed from his family the following Christmas, Christmas Day. So uh, at 13 19, months old, correct? Yeah, 1957. Um, and ultimately he became the first plaintiff to, uh, the first person to sex successfully make out a claim that he'd been unlawfully removed from his family as a child. And, um, that decision was made in uh, August 2007, just over 10 years ago. So Bruce, uh, Trevorrow, he was taken... Uh, well, he was admitted to hospital at 13 months old and uh, was not returned. Well, so what, ha what happened was his, he, he was one of an extended family. Um, he and his parents were living in Five Mile Camp, Ten Mile Camp, which are camp, were camps that were established um, outside the no-go area um, around Meningi. Back then, um, the... Um, the lives of Aboriginal people were constrained by legislation. Uh, they were not permitted to be in townships after dark and things like that. Mm. So that in, um, communities were set up outside the ambit of these no-go areas um, and they were camps, you know, shanties um, relying on soaks for water and things like that. And of course it's his father's and mother's traditional land. Um, and so he was living there with his father and mother, his um, older sister, two older brothers, um, and the older sisters um, from a former uh, relationship of his mother. Oh, sorry, of his father. Um, and Christmas Day, he was sick. 
um, a distant relation who was married to um, a white man um, who had a car volunteered to take him to the Adelaide Children's Hospital. Um, and so they took him to the Adelaide Children's Hospital and he was admitted. Um, a diagnosis was made that he was um, uh, suffering from malnutrition um, and neglected and he was fostered to a white family by about the 6th of January mm. um, without without any proper investigation, without any further correspondence with his parents, um, and he didn't ever see his father again. His father died before Bruce returned to his family, and he didn't, in fact, meet his mother until his 10th birthday. Um, so, so was there any... Um was the diagnosis well founded, or was that? Um... Well, that was that was one of the the areas that we took quite a bit of evidence on um, and collated um, leading up to the trial. At that time, there was a um, a problem with gastro, um, and you know many children were suffering from gastroenteritis. For me, it was really easy to put myself in that time frame because I'm born in February 1956, so I'm, what, 10 months older than Bruce. And mm. I remember in my childhood that we didn't have refrigeration um, and gastro was something that children got because um, things might get tainted and the, the rest, you know. Mm. So similarly to Bruce, but different circumstances really... Mm. Um, um, I can remember having gastro not infrequently uh, when I was a young child. Mm. Um, so what, what you're saying is um, Bruce having gastro is nothing remarkable, so to speak. Nothing remarkable at the time. And, and in fact, we reviewed the newspapers of the time and, and there were a number of articles discussing the fact that you know this was a problem and um, children were becoming unwell, children from all kinds of backgrounds. Mm. But but the diagnosis of uh, malnutrition was um, um, disagreed with by an expert that we um, had looked at it from who worked extensive an older man who worked extensively with Aboriginal families in the Northern Territory um, and it was what had happened he was dehydrated he'd had gastroenteritis um, mm. and there was no indication that he had malnutrition at all. Mm. But that was the finding on his hospital record at the time when he was admitted. Um, and um, and from what I understand, um, the uh, Bruce, Bruce Trevorrow's mother wrote to the hospital asking um, w w the no, status of his son. No, not the hospital. No, she wrote, oh, to, she wrote to Mrs Angus, who was one of the welfare officers um, with the Aborigines Department. The Aborigines Department had, a, I don't know, three or four welfare officers that that managed, who oversaw the communities um, all across South Australia. So she was a welfare officer. She'd only recently become a welfare officer with the, the department. And she was writing some really um, scathing um, assessments of communities and families. Um, and um, her, she was responsible for the Meningi area. Um, and, of course... You have to remember this is against the background of many children uh, being 
taken to hospital or taken uh, into uh, foster families without the agreement of fam- of their families. So mm. it was not uncommon for children to be taken to Adelaide and not be seen again. So yeah. uh, Thora Lampard, Bruce's mother, wrote to um, Mrs Angus asking where her son was, asking, saying that she'd not forgotten she had a son. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that uh, she wanted him, wanted to know when he'd be returned home. And what was their reply? Uh, that the doctor said he was still not well enough to right. come home. Mm. But in fact, he hadn't seen a doctor since early January. Right. Uh, um, he had already been placed in the foster family with the Davies. Um, and um, there was no truth in her letter. Uh, her response to Mrs. Uh, to Sora Lampard that uh, her son was still too unwell to come home. And um, the part of the strength of Trevorrow's case was all this written evidence, uh, correct? Uh, whereas other similar cases to do with uh, victims of the stolen generations didn't have that evidence available to uh, strengthen their cases. That's true. Um, at the time of preparing for the trial, and it took. It took from 1994, uh, which is when Bruce first came to me asking if there was something to be done, um, until the, uh, the trial actually began in 2005. So 11 years to um, actually go to hearing, which is extraordinarily long time. Um, over that time, more and more research was done by Bruce's team, and no doubt by the Crown Solicitor's Office. And, and we were told that um, 95% of the children's files had been destroyed. Wow. Um, and that it just was, it just so happened that his was one of the files later it became clear had not been destroyed. When he came to first see me in the early 90s, one of the first things I did was write um, under Freedom of Information and ask for a copy of his file. Um, and we received a bundle of some 30-odd pages. Um, later, I don't know, I can't remember the years now, but some years later, I wrote again and asked for a copy of his file. And this time we received a file that was more than 300 pages. Yeah, right. And it became clear when we received that second bundle of papers that Mrs Lampard had been writing, asking for her son. All sorts of things had been happening, which had not been disclosed when we first asked for information about what had happened to him. So his was apparently an unusual case. Uh, even though Bruce Trevorrow was, was returned to his family uh, at age nine, the damage was done, so no, to speak. No, it was Oh, was it? Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, so when? how old was he? Look, I think he was 10, actually. Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, but um, it's not just the removal that had an impact on his life, which was devastating. For example, he never knew his father, so he never had an opportunity to learn um, his 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 position as a traditional Aboriginal person in his community. Because lost, because his family is quite respected in the community, correct? Very respected in the community. Mm. Yeah, yes. The um, his father was was uh, um, somebody who was well respected. He brought his other sons up to have great knowledge of the land. 
um, uh, his brothers both who have died since died uh, sadly um, uh, Tom Trevorrow and George Trevorrow who's the oldest um, were at the forefront of, of knowledge and respect for their community mm. as adults and were also um, prime movers in this dialogue about reconciliation and recognition. Um, both set up cultural awareness programs for their own community and for the broader Australian community, which were extremely well received. So they were people, men of knowledge and respect, um, who had the confidence of being brought up within their community, within their family, mm. and the knowledge and um, um, respect and security that that brings with it. Bruce, on the other hand, was moved from pillar to post. The, the, the story of Bruce's damage is a story of removal, of um, unplanned and dangerous pla- placement back with his family, effectively with, with a family of strangers, of subsequent removal again, of, and then uh, being placed in um, institutions, short-term foster placements, um, such that by the time he was 16, he had completely lost the ability to form attachments um, mm. with family or friends or um, um, and emotionally damaged for the rest of his life. Yeah. yeah. You're listening to Subject ACT. I'm Nathan Goobler, and I'm currently in conversation with Joanna Richardson, the solicitor who ran a successful case for Bruce Trevorrow, who was unlawfully taken at the age of 13 months by the state of South Australia. This case was um, resolved uh, 10 years after the Bringing Them Home report was uh, released. And in that report, uh, it says that the... uh, the pathway to compensation that uh, Bruce Trevorrow took uh, was not recommended, uh, putting it lightly. Um, so why why was it the case that um, you did have to go through the courts to get compensation? Uh, because the recommendations about um, reparation that uh, were discussed in the Bringing Them Home report were not picked up by any government. And so the only, the only way to explore the issues and seek a, a, a resolution under our law was to um, issue a claim in court, mm. uh, citing, you know, asserting that the removal had been unlawful um, and that it had been effectively negligent um, and that um, as a result Bruce had suffered harm and that he was entitled to compensation. Uh, because of the harm suffered. Governments did not accept that children, Aboriginal children, had been removed unlawfully. Right. Against this case is against the background of, as you say, the Bringing Them Home um, Royal Commission. Hmm. Um, the, the, the State of South Australia um, made submissions to that inquiry, which... Um, effectively were that, you know, we did the best we could. Um, They critically did not acknowledge um, that at the time there were questions being, at the time Bruce was removed and before, 
there were questions being asked about the lawfulness of the way that children were being, Aboriginal children were being removed from families. Mm. It was accepted um, at trial and on appeal in the case of South Australia that the protected did not have the authority to remove children without going through due process. And there was a process that was meant to be followed, which meant that the protector of Aborigines and the Children's Welfare Department had to agree that a child was neglected before a child could be removed, or alternatively, a child could be you know, brought to court and proved neglected mm. in the way still happens now when uh, there's concerns about children and attempts to remove them from their parents' care. Um, none of that was followed in the case of Bruce Trevorrow, and uh, there were hundreds of other Aboriginal children who were removed from their care in South Australia where that process wasn't followed. Mm. And the research we conducted revealed documents where the Children's Welfare Department, which was um, overseeing the welfare of non-Aboriginal children, and the Aborigines Protection Board were at loggerheads with each other about what should happen with um, um, Aboriginal children. Mm. The Children's Welfare Department had concerns about taking Aboriginal children into mainstream child welfare um, processes and homes. Um, and so because they could not reach an agreement about how to do it, the protector and the officers of the department um, went ahead and did what they chose to do um, regardless um, there were two opinions obtained from the Crown Solicitor of the time about what was the right thing to do, and both of those opinions said the protector could not do, could not remove children without following due process. So the other reason that Mr. Trevorrow's case was successful was that not only was there a lie, which was a really powerful thing mm. um, when looking at the circumstances, but it was found that the protector and the officers of the department knew when they were removing children that they were acting outside the law. Mm. The third thing we were able to establish that made the case successful was that we had to show that at the time, the people doing those actions knew or ought to have known that by removing children and handling them in the way they were, uh, was likely to cause harm, emotional, physical, psychological harm to the children. And we were able to show that uh, in the late 40s, early 50s, there'd been some significant research into the effect of removing children from prime carers, largely arising out of the um, what had happened when children were taken from uh, parental homes in England during World War Two, oh, okay. you know, the removing them because of the um, the fear of bombing and the like. Yep, yep. And so um, it was established that that kind of removal was traumatic, and if not handled properly, would cause lasting psychological harm mm. to the children. And so the people who were working in the department at the time Bruce Bruce was removed were people who studied social work and had been taught these things and it was 
determined by the court that the department knew that this way of handling children would cause harm mm. and if they didn't know, they should have known. And so we were able to show effectively that's negligence to, to, to know that what you're doing is wrong and or that it is going to cause harm is what then exposes the state to liability to pay compensation for mm. the harm caused. So for, for Bruce, um, was the uh, financial compensation um, the main thing or was it getting the, um, getting the court to acknowledge that he had been wrongfully uh, obtained by the Aborigines Protection Board? Uh, wrongfully removed. Ah, wrongfully wrongfully placed, removed. Yep. Wrongfully returned, wrongfully removed, yep. wrongfully placed over and over again. Mm. Uh, the, 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 the question of monetary compensation was very secondary to the motive for the... Um, uh, Mr. Troy Bruce's motives for continuing with the claim. He, was de- he felt he'd been treated wrongly and he wanted a court to acknowledge that that is what had happened. Mm. And at the time, there was quite a debate going on because there'd been the, uh, there'd been the Bringing Them Home report, which had said, you know, um, there'd been the talk of the stolen generations. There were the the commentators like Mr. Bolt and Mr. Yep. Windshuttle saying there's no no such thing as stolen fabrication. Children. Yeah, yeah. Fabrication. Yeah. Um, and um, yes, there was a desire to to challenge those comments because Bruce and his family and many, many other Aboriginal families across the, the country know that those children were removed, that they were stolen, but without, without a finding of wrongfulness, it was, there were people who, who complained about that treatment mm. uh, were, were being dismissed uh, as, as effectively fabricating mm. um, things. And so it was really important in that dialogue to, 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 to prove that children, in, and it was proven that children, Aboriginal children in South Australia in the 50s and up, up until about 1963 were often removed from their families without lawful process. Um, and it was unlawful. Mm. Um, what are some of the other flow and effects from the decision? Well, I think that it ultimately stopped the commentators saying there was a fabrication, um, that that was a pervasive argument for a long time. Right. Um, it ultimately, soon after, led to the formal apology uh, given by Prime Minister Rudd in the um, federal parliament, which was an extremely moving moment and an acknowledgement mm. um, of past wrongs. Um, it slightly shifted the dialogue. The dialogue about um, whether it had happened uh, versus now. It's more about what do we do about uh, reconciling uh, that past, so to speak. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, 
exactly. Yeah. Um, the um, ultimately it, um, it uh, led to a reparation scheme in Tasmania. There's not, there has been a reparation scheme in um, Western Australia and also now in South Australia. Um, um, it, but it has shifted the dialogue to and acknowledged past wrongs, hmm. which in and of itself is a profound thing. Now, it's nearly uh, 10 years since um, the apology that uh, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd gave in Parliament. Um, there are some uh, uh, political commentators who say that the apology um, was really kind of window dressing and really doesn't address any uh, continuing issues uh, with regards to Aboriginal people. But um, Bruce Trevorrow was present at the um, the apology. Was it significant for him? Very. It was it it was a significant apology because it was a a tangible formal recognition of past wrongs and our society can't move forward um, in an informed way unless we um, have a true basis of a true foundation to move forward from and to and a formal recognition of that what had happened was wrong was critical to moving the dialogue forward and hopefully you know thinking of um, Tom and George Trevorrow and their uh, constant aim of reconciliation and harmony, mutual respect. You can't do that if if a lie is not exposed mm. and acknowledged mm. and apologised for. Mm. And um, the Uluru statement that came out uh, uh, during the year, uh, one of the recommendations that it gave was a Truth and Reconciliation Council, similar to uh, post-apartheid South Africa. Do you think that would be a um, highly significant and necessary move? Look, I, I think for some people that kind of process is enormously cathartic. Um, it's, it's not going to be for everybody, but there are a significant number of people who just want the truth on the, pay, on the, on the, on the table. Um, as I said, not every jurisdiction has has um, acknowledged um, in tangible ways what has happened in the past, um, and that is why there are still calls for these kinds of processes. The Northern Territory, uh, which was then administered from the Commonwealth, um, any number of children were treated in this way there. Many of them were brought to South Australia and placed in foster um, families. Many of them were sexually abused in, in the homes in which they were placed, both the um, church-run homes and in private foster homes. We often feel as people that an apology can be um, window dressing if it's not followed through uh, with by real action, but of course it's not just removal of children from families that has so deeply affected um, Aboriginal people across Australia. No, no. There's the the well, the legacy the of the frontier wars is um, ongoing, the, ongoing. The frontier wars, yes, yeah. but there's also um, the fact that so many people were effectively. Um, 
slaves in yep. families yep. were not paid properly for work that was um, undertaken by them. Land that's been removed that for for various reasons there's no ability to claim nat- native title over because of various processes. Um, the the destruction of communities and culture and knowledge and law is, is profoundly um, affected Aboriginal communities across the whole country, and and we we as a community across Australia and and individual communities within Australia suffer the effects of that harm every day. Mm. It continues to cause grief and loss and damage. Um, and if Aboriginal people say that a truth and reconciliation process is one that's required, then I accept their their opinion. Mm. 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 Um, and uh, then, of course, we get to the question of treaty yeah. or not, yeah. recognition in the Constitution or not. Um, I know there are different views from different people. Mm. I don't know what the answer is, and really it doesn't matter, I think, what I think, because um, um, it's for the communities and the individuals to to determine an appropriate outcome. Joanna Richardson, thanks for being uh, with us on Subject ACT. Thank you. You've been listening to Subject ACT, which is broadcast on 2XX 98.3 FM on weekdays from 8.30 to 9am. To find this and other episodes in podcast form, just hop onto our SoundCloud page or find us on the iTunes store. You can also find us on Facebook. How about you throw us a like? Thanks for listening and tune in for more quality programming in your people-powered radio station, 2XX 98.3 FM.